A marvelous tale of high fantasy, replete with a thousand wonders, narrow escapes, and continuous daring do, as only Lynn Carter, grand master of adult fantasy, could write. Today on Dumpster Book Club, we're talking about Keswick, an adult fantasy, by Lynn Carter. I'm Sean. And I'm Mimi. And this book is not gay. out this book mainly because of just how gay the cover is um it's one of the best covers of any of the books we've done i'm not sure if we can fully explain it but well how do we how do you even start with this cover we have a beefcake of a man with flowing red hair and a freddie mercury mustache uh Uh, also red and he's wearing a shimmering purple leotard, skin tight green tights, which show everything. <laughs> Knee high boots. He's got an earring, tons of gold necklaces, bangles, uh, leather arm cuffs, um, and his sword is erect and angled from his crotch, glittering in the (laughs) nightlight. Not only is he wielding a sword, he also has a spear held between his legs. (laughs) He's just (laughs) gripping it with his thigh. Um, And this this hunk is riding uh, a hippogriff as his mount. And the hippogriff seems to be covered... It's made of rhinestone. <laughs> this is every, a rhinestone cowboy on his rhinestone <laughs> hippogriff. Every inch of the hippogriff is gems or sequins. Um, he has a rainbow mane. It also has some nice jewelry with a big emerald at its chest. He has an emerald covered like bondage harness, like a leather across the chest harness. The wings of this animal look like they're coated in glitter. Uh, Also could be made of pizza. (laughs) Imagine a glittery pizza, and that is the wings. Um, The entire sky also, because most of the background is just sky and space, also looks like... The artist just dumped glitter across the page. It's purple and blue glitter, and you can see two large moons in the background. It looks like there should be a holographic version of this cover, and we ended up with the non-holographic. <laughs> but I did want to mention uh, one more thing about the hippogriff, is it has that silly beak with teeth sticking <laughs> out the top of it. A little bit of an overbite. Nothing in the book lived up to this cover. With a cover like this, you had to know going in that nothing could compare. (laughs) The artist went way beyond what was necessary. (laughs) I guess we can get into Lynn Carter. His full name is Linwood Vrooman Carter. (laughs) Vrooman. (laughs) And I found one picture of him where he... He looks kind of like if Charles Manson was also a wizard. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, uh, Okay, so he was part of an all-boys literary club called the Trapdoor Spiders. Does he mention that in the back of the book? Uh, Yeah, he has a thank you to some members, I think, of his boys club. That club probably smelled so bad. (laughs) Um, well, Isaac Asimov apparently wrote about the club, like used them as a basis for, he had a group of mystery solvers called the Black Widowers. It was based on this trapdoor spiders club. Uh, Hmm. 
was anyone else famous in that club or did anyone else write anything of note in that club uh do you know i don't know you didn't recognize any no. of the names so oh well i didn't look too deep into the trapdoor spiders um but he was also part of swordsmen and sorcerers guild of america and some other groups wow what happened to the great american guilds <laughs> Um, he's also written under a few different pseudonyms, including H.P. Lowcraft, where he, (laughs) (laughs) under that name, he exclusively wrote H.P. Lovecraft parody stories. Yeah, it sounds like an H.P. Lovecraft-inspired rapper. (laughs) (laughs) But he was also pretty funny, just some of the stuff I read about him where he's like, he wrote a ton of stuff, but he also edited a lot of like anthologies and groups of stories from other writers. But anytime he was in charge of editing something, he would always make sure his own stuff was in there. Well, that's one of the benefits, I think. Oh, and then he was like really into self-promotion. Like he would cite his own works in other things and then have really obvious self-insert characters that were just himself as the hero of a book like this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think the strongest part of the book was the promotion. The cover is amazing. The blurb on the back is really great. And then the book starts with a cast of characters. It gets you really pumped. It just lists all the characters. Keswick, a knight, and a hero, and Teron, a friendly sorcerer. It just goes down all the characters. There's there's a wicked witch and an evil Egyptian wizard. And then he lists a bunch of crazy magical monsters that are in there. I think a lot of people were probably tricked into getting this book. I certainly was. (laughs) Not even tricked. I just think it does a really good job of selling itself off the shelf, which is the most important (laughs) thing for these kinds of books. Yeah. Um, I think Lynn Carter also met a pretty sad end where he basically started drinking and smoking a ton and ended up with like mouth and throat cancer and uh, ended up disfigured and then died from it. The end. (laughs) A somber Uh, moment in Dumpster Book Club. (laughs) I don't know how to start this because there's so many things I just want to scream out about this book right (laughs) off the beginning. And I don't know how to wait for the story to happen. (laughs) Well, we'll do our best. So um, the book is broken up into sort of sub books or like major parts. Book one was amazing. If the rest of the book had been like book one, it would have been pretty good, I think. I think chapter one of book one is some of the best we've read on this show. Yes. After chapter one of book one, it takes a pretty steep dive. And then after and then book two. Yeah. It completely tanks. Well, maybe it was just the momentum from chap- book one, chapter one. Chapter one was great. Just carried me through the rest of book one. So, yeah, chapter one basically starts off with the climax of a different story. Or we get right to the good stuff. Our hero and knight. It's the final scene of The Hobbit. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's just the... It's It's the the, climax of The Hobbit. uh Uh-huh. The big set piece of the, The Hobbit. So, our hero and knight in glittering bedazzled armor (laughs) um has journeyed to the end of the world to speak with this the dragon zorog who's like the oldest living being or something yes older than the the greek gods it's totally the classic scene. The dragon's sitting on his pile of gold. He wants to eat the knight, and he just needs the knight to come closer into the main chamber, but the knight is too clever, and they have their dialogue, and Kesrick is looking for the magic pommel stone to his magic sword so he can defeat the evil Egyptian wizard Zazamank? Zazamank? Yeah. Zarzamank? Yeah. <laughs> uh... And he's asking this dragon where it is. And he's got some clever wiles. I don't know. 
he kind of tricks the dragon into really like talking about himself and kind of mm-hmm. butters him up a little bit. Kesrick is really great at the turn of conversation. So tell me about yourself <laughs> and getting people to share a little bit too much. That's his main strength as a hero. <laughs> Yeah, he, like, put all his points of charisma. He's not that great at fighting, as listed in the story. Not particularly strong or hearty or intelligent, even. But he's incredibly smooth. It's just that mustache. (laughs) Um, So, Zazamank got rid of the pommel stone, stole the pommel stone, and hid it somewhere. Or was the pommel stone always missing? Um. And why was Zazamank? Why Zazamank? Okay, so Zazamank, there was a prophecy that Kesrick was going to kill Zazamank. Okay. Using the pommel stone, but so Zazamank tries to kill Kesrick take the pommel stone and get rid of it, but all his plans are thwarted by Kesrick's fairy godmother, who rescues him, and yeah, this pommel stone, I don't know how it got lost, but... Yes, and the reason the pommel stone is so important is that it upgrades this magical sword to reflect any spell cast at the user back at the spellcaster. So he's pretty much invincible to any direct magical attack because he'll just bounce back at his opponent with the pommel stone before i forget i wanted to mention this sword because he has a named sword mm-hmm. uh dastigurd and it was like the most incredible sword um it had slain thousands of great monsters and all the monsters knew its name by sight okay yeah and it was forged in a volcano melted down 20 times and reforged and uh after being forged in a volcano is plunged into the black and bitter foam of the river sticks for tempering and it's got dwarf runes on it and it's etched with basilisk acid and it's quivering full of dark magic and it's like it went on and on about this sword <laughs> um all of chapter one was kind of like that. Everything was just so much. Did you catch that Zazamank, the Egyptian wizard, speaks in hieroglyph? <laughs> <laughs> I missed that. It specifically says he was muttering to himself in hieroglyph. <laughs> <laughs> so this book was just a parody of fantasy. Right, so remember every episode of this podcast where I say you shouldn't reference better books in your shitty book because it just makes me want to read those better books? That is the whole point of this book. It is reference after reference after reference, both in content. So it was on purpose that this beginning was just like the end of The Hobbit. It wasn't coincidence. And he does that, and he'll even tell you that he's doing that where he'll say, oh, this is just like that one Greek tale. But not only that, the characters are aware of these references because it takes place in an altered magic earth. So all these Greek tales exist, and they say, oh, it's like this, you know, great story or classic uh, fantasy story. And then Lynn Carter also... The This book would only be 20 pages if it weren't for just the lists of names he drops of different things. He's always name dropping classic heroes, fantasy monsters, magic wizards that are all references to other books. And it's like my worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought at least for m- most of book one, it was pretty well done. And it was, it was, it was okay. pretty funny. It's supposed to be a funny book, I think. It's definitely supposed to be a funny book. And at least for the first 20 pages, it was charming. Um, but after that, there's just like so much going on in the world. Okay, well, I guess we should have talked about this at the end. Yeah, we're but- <laughs> getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> but-, but I guess just if a thing we're talking about seems like another story, it's on purpose in this book. 
And just imagine between every event, there's just a big list of monster names that starts getting real tedious real fast. Um, But at the beginning, it was pretty efficient, I think, because he was able to, you know, set up scenes and talk about monsters where it's like, you already know what this thing is like from other stuff. So he doesn't have to spend a lot of time explaining what everything looks like and how it acts. Right. So this book, I don't know if it's for sure because I didn't look it up, but it is written in the style of something that was published in a magazine, uh, monthly or weekly. So each chapter reintroduces all the characters and reminds you of the basic plot, has a small arc of uh, danger, confronting danger, and then resolving. And each chapter is between 5 to 15 pages, in which there is a pretty much complete story, and if not, it's resolved by the next one. Yeah, some leave off on like a cliffhanger ending that picks up at the next chapter. So... It, I believe it must have been intended to be published in a magazine or, you know, those classic fantasy magazines where it would just be a couple pages and you'd keep reading the magazine each month and you could jump in it. You can jump in at any time. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if it was supposed to be that or just like a reference to stuff like that. Um, but maybe if not, it rehashes the like there's a last time on every five to ten pages (laughs) and it's not like the plot's super complex so you need to be reminded of things (laughs) or who people are i wanted to mention about zazamink um because i actually thought all the descriptions of him were super funny because it starts to like describe his sense of interior decor and it's like he lives in a spirit halloween store (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and like it's so dank. <laughs> yeah. Um he's like the most over the top evil villain wizard and uh and it just goes on and on. We're like adding on to it. And I think um here's an example of one of these passages. He had at length found Keswick in his magic crystal, a black mirror of polished obsidian which reposed in a frame of iron, worked all over with the grinning visages of demons. By means of this crystal he had followed the adventures of our hero, even as I have related them, and now crouched atop a tall stool whose legs were made from the thigh bones of his vanquished enemies, pondering a vast tome which lay open before him upon a narrow lectern fashioned from the rotten wood of gallows and coffins. Above his head there dangled by a length of iron chain a retort of glass filled with clarified phosphorus, whose coldly weird effulgent fell upon the great book he was feverishly pursuing as it likewise shed its uncanny luminance on dripping walls of ragged stone where skeletons dangled in rust-eaten chains (laughs) Um, pretty cool guy he's just like a huge edgelord though by the end and uh i think the best part at the very end he has like photographs of other evil guys that are signed like autographed evil photographs Mm -hmm. his trading card collection and the narrator comments about how photographs don't even exist yet (laughs) wow (laughs) um anyway that's how cool zazamank is keserick gets the information out of the dragon that he needs to continue his journey and we kind of fast forward or get like a montage of some other really cool adventures that he does on his journey. And the narrator kind of tells you there's even more, but there's no, there's no point describing it. It happens a few times where time passes and in the time passing, Keswick and friends slay great monsters just so he can list more references I think I actually liked some of those parts where the narrator kind of takes over the the story a little bit. They're all right. I yeah. feel here nor there about them. By the second or third time it happened, I was just so sick. Like, my eyes would glaze over and just, I don't need this information. I don't need this information. <laughs> and then, like, bam, okay, we're back in the story again. Uh, because none of it actually mattered to anything. His next big quest is to meet with... 
the wizard, Teron. Which has a silent P at the beginning of it. Pteron. Um, and Pteron is an annoying know-it-all. He's lived for 10,000 years and he's read every single book and he loves to reference all his books. He's like uh, Lynn Carter's self-conscious self. What? Because uh, he's always referencing all the books oh. he's read, which this book <laughs> is just a list of references of all the books Lynn Carter's read. Um, and he makes Teron kind of annoying. Yeah, he's super obnoxious. But I really like Kesrick's trick. Kesrick does the classic move. So to convince Teron to come with him, he refers him to, or answers one of his questions by referring to this made-up philosopher and refers to some made-up works by this philosopher that would clearly explain why Teron should come help him out. Teron has to pretend that he's heard of this guy. He's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I've, I've read everything he's done. It's kind of like Keswick rolled a natural 20 but didn't have the actual explanation to back up his natural 20. So he's like, I just referenced some things he doesn't know. <laughs> I felt like this is a really good trick for people who are like this in real life, where... <laughs> make up something and they pretend like they know all about it and you know okay they're they're full of it does that work after grade school (laughs) uh i don't know i don't talk to people (laughs) i just felt like it was a a way to be a sorcerer for little kids it's just if you're telling the story to a child a child would like immediately grab onto that way of tricking a wizard or a smart person well i liked it i thought it was funny (laughs) Uh, they team up and we head on to book two where things start to get bad. <laughs> I feel like Teron is the part where things start to get bad because he I found him very obnoxious. Even when Keswick was funny dealing with him, he was still too annoying. Anyway. Um, well, book two is where things get a little bit sexist and racist. So this is where our hero and our wizard encounter um, Aramapsia. I have no idea how to say her name. She's a princess who's been chained to like a rock in the middle of the ocean. To be sacrificed to a sea monster. She's totally naked and she stays totally naked throughout the remainder of the book. And not just like, oh, she's wearing fantasy armor for sexy ladies, just fully head to toe nude (laughs) for the entire rest of the book. She refuses clothing at every point that it's offered to her. And at first, I thought this was a fetish thing where he was going to describe every person's reaction to her being naked because that happens a few times. But then I don't think that's the purpose. I feel like the purpose If you're going on the theory of it's in a fantasy magazine or you're meant to only read each chapter at a time, is you can have a titillating element without any, like, there's the naked lady. Okay, let's keep going. (laughs) And if she never puts on clothes, she never has to take them off or be or even do anything sexy. You can just say naked woman. And then continue on with her story. And I think that was her entire purpose in the book was to just be a titillating element that he didn't have to think too hard about. So I think that maybe what Lynn Carter was going for, and I'm not sure, but I think that the goal was to be a parody of that type of thing. And that trope of there's always like a scantily clad woman or or her clothes get ripped off or something happens to get rid of them. But so I think he was trying to take that and like take it further to where she does always refuse the clothing because she doesn't have time for that or, you know, She's not worried about that. And like, but I don't think it ever fully escaped the trope. Right. Same with uh, the racist stuff. It almost seems put in because that's how books like this are supposed to be. Like it was like supposed to be like, I don't know, a nudge, nudge, wink, wink thing. Like, oh, I know this is sexist or and or racist, but it's funny yeah, but it, it just never got there. Yeah. 
Um, because I, if if you're trying to comment on something, but your comment is just having the thing, yeah, it's not. You're not really saying anything about it. This book was written in 1981. It's it was not written in the 50s, not in the 60s, not in the 70s. I don't think without it being a reference, you could get away with this level of just there's a naked woman and her only purpose is to be naked or the the blatantly racist stuff later in the book. It doesn't it doesn't fit with the time period for me and the types of fantasy and science fiction being written then. Um so if it wasn't a reference then Lynn Carter is just a Cro-Magnon or something. <laughs> um anyway, when Keserick meets the princess and is trying to rescue her from this sea monster. There was like the most literal interpretation of the male gaze where it describes her like like he's just looking at different parts of her body one at a time like while he's about to rescue her like checking out her ankles. She's got pretty good ankles. Wait, is that what male gaze mean? It just means <laughs> a dude looking at a woman? <laughs> this is like the most just the literal interpretation of those yeah, words. Yeah. Okay. Where it's like, this is exactly what her ankles look like. And then he looks at her boobs and this is what her boobs look like. And he looks at like every part of her body. And this is what it's like when in a movie, when the camera like zooms in on <laughs> someone's breasts and then moves down her body to like, uh-huh. that that was what we got where it just describes every, every part and how great it is. They do that with the other female character that comes near the end too. Yeah, but well, we didn't get a good one of Keswick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we just have to rely on this amazing cover artist for that. So then there's a walrus monster. Yes, it sounds very horrifying. And Keswick fights it, but then it turns out that it's a man who's been cursed. So Teron helps turn him back into a person. Yeah. A weird thing about this throughout the book is it's unclear how conscious this character was while it was the sea monster because other women had been sacrificed to the sea monster. And Lynn will not tell you actually what happened, but he likes to hint in a lot of different directions as to what the monster did with the women. But then it's very unclear if it's because it was a monster or if these were just the desires of the character or or like where the monster and the character started and stopped which yeah. i don't think was anything lynn carter intended but to me it just felt like even if you did turn this person into a human why would you keep this person around that was a horrible monster <laughs> well yeah i guess their explanation was that they felt responsible for him after rescuing him but um or because Kesdrick follows a chivalrous code yeah i think that was another example of all like all the characters and the way that they were talking to the princess where the other women who were sacrificed were her sisters and and the monster guy gives a really half-assed apology where he's like, oh, yeah, sorry I ate your delectable sisters. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, the, she was, like, the, I don't know, third or something to be sacrificed, but they started with the most beautiful. And, like, Keswick also makes a joke about that, like, how he can't imagine that, like they could be more beautiful than her. It's like, she's just telling you that her sisters were killed by a monster. (laughs) And that's, that's your response. (laughs) But anyway, um, so this person is Gagliofo. Yep. Is that how we're going to say it? Yeah. And Gagliofo is Mr. Popo from Dragon Ball Z. He's described initially as being like in like, just blackface like he's covered in soot with purple blubbering lips well it's the uh it's the classic caricature of the moor yeah 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 and again unclear if this is a reference to classic fantasy literature or if lynn carter is a horrible racist because it doesn't go anywhere with it 
it was like so over the top. I'm pretty sure it was meant to be a parody or a reference to other stuff like Lovecraft even was pretty bad. But but it, it, but it was never funny. It was never like subverting just, the trope. It it's was, just a parody that makes you feel bad yeah. about the reality of the world <laughs> without saying anything about it. Yes. So they bring Gagliofo along on their adventures and then they go to the house of the Efreet. Efreet? Yeah, he's a he's a, what, kind of genie, which is where the magic pommel stone is hidden. Yes. Oh, the other reason Taron agreed is because in addition to the magic pommel stone, the genie also has a special talisman of controlling genies Mm -hmm. and he wants that for himself. So then, uh, I think I liked this part. This was one of the few moments I liked after chapter one, where there's a big magical door that they have to say words into, but instead they just fly around and go through one of the giant windows. (laughs) Cause I always think that when, when you're watching fantasy movies or science fiction shows where they have to go through this crazy effort to get into some building but then the building has all these giant open columns and there's a big open field and no walls or anything i always feel like you should just be able to go around well they do on their magical mechanical flying horse that Taron brought with yeah the magical flying horses really get them out of a lot of binds (laughs) Uh, the, the other thing I liked about this chapter is that it's got, you know, the the best part of this kind of fantasy literature where there's just lists of gems of every type of gem. And it was like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but with gems. Yeah, there are fountains of diamonds spurting in the air and <laughs> there's a magical garden where everything is actually gems. But... Gagliofo is like Augustus Gloop. <laughs> well, it's so unfair because we're meant to judge Gagliofo for wanting to take all this treasure, and I don't think they let him take any treasure. Yeah. But Kezert gets his magic pommel stone, and Teron gets his magic item, but then they also just steal a bunch of rubies <laughs> for money. <laughs> so why can't Gagliofo take some stuff? Uh, they probably should have let him. Yeah, he was risking just as much going in there. uh, Well, anyway, so the the genie appears while um, Teron is doing some astral travel to attempt to locate these magical artifacts because they can't find them in the piles and piles of gems. Um, So he's kind of out of commission, and so Kesrick is on his own to face the genie, but... He just gets out of it through clever conversation again. Yeah, apparently genies are pretty easily tricked. At least in this book they are a few times. They've accomplished their mission. They got the pommel stone. They got genie talisman. They escape on their magical mechanical flying horse into book three, where Gagliofo betrays them. He takes both magic items... The two sacks of rubies and kidnaps Aramaspia. Hell! <laughs> there's a there's a reward for killing the monster where he would get to marry Aramaspia and get, you know, a quarter of the kingdom or whatever. Yeah, so that's his incredibly dumb plan, which is to kidnap her bring her back home and convince her family that he did all the rescuing and all that. And I was like, how is he going to do that with her there as a witness? But then, oh yeah, no one listens to her because she's a lady and oh yeah. She's just a naked cardboard cutout over there. She doesn't have (laughs) words to say. She like tries to explain things and like everyone like immediately cuts her off while she's talking. (laughs) And And then, oh yeah, her stepfather's the one who chained her to a rock in the middle of the ocean as a sacrifice anyway, so... That's where... That part is almost where it gets clever enough where you don't (laughs) feel bad about... uh, Yeah. The nature of what's happening. What I was frustrated with when I was reading this is 
Aramasby's main argument for not putting on clothes is that she's a Scythian and they're used to being naked and they're used to the cold, but no one else in the city was naked. <laughs> and I really expected, oh, cool, we're going to meet Aramasby's family and there's just going to be a naked king and a naked queen and they're going to have crowns. And <laughs> like just a, a little naked nudist city. colony. Yeah, that's what I imagined they were. <laughs> you should have done that. That, that would have been, been fun. But uh, no. Meanwhile, Zazmank, what, talks to the genie, tells the genie to go get those guys that stole this stuff, and uh, the genie rushes off to kill Teron, but finds Gagliofo pretending to be Teron, and everyone thinks that he is Teron. So Gagliofo gets captured by the genie mm. and taken back to Zazmank. And then Kesrick and Teron show up and... <laughs> right they, on time. Yeah, then they get to... Uh, be the heroes wait that's where they got the rubies from the king oh they didn't steal it from the efreet no yeah okay oh wait how does that make sense it doesn't matter okay well then they decide to stop for a picnic because they're hungry they're very hungry and they end up in an enchanted garden and take a nap and Teron decides he doesn't want to wake them up. He's just going to fly back home. They seem like they have things under control. Yeah, the adventure's over. Kesrick has his pommel stone. Aramaspia's married to him. And Teron has his uh, genie-controlling artifact. Um, but he still has to learn how to use it. So that's why he flies off to his home in a hurry, leaving them to continue their nap. They wake up, and they are trapped in the garden... And the whole thing lifts up and moves around from location to location. And there was a description I thought was pretty cool uh, of the barrier. There's like an invisible barrier keeping them trapped in the garden so they can't get out. This is very odd, muttered the knight to himself. And it certainly was, for it's difficult to imagine an impassable barrier that affords no resistance to the touch. Picture it, if you will, in these terms. Extend your arm to the limit with your fingers outstretched. Although no substance meets your touch, it remains impossible to reach farther. Something like that was the experience which Kesrick found in striving vainly to pass the viewless barrier. When you read that, did you try to do it? <laughs> no. Because I did. I don't really, still don't really understand... Well, just reach your arm out. Okay. And now try to reach further. Okay. Okay, now try to reach further. Okay. Now go as far as you can reach. As far as you can reach. Okay. <laughs> now what? <laughs> you have to go as far as you can reach. Okay, but what now? Well, now go farther. Okay. You have to go as far as you can reach. Okay. <laughs> and then you can't go any farther. You just lean forward more? No. <laughs> take a step? Well, I thought it was a cool description. A cool magical barrier. It's fine. Fine. It's <laughs> fine. Um, while they're in this pickle... They meet another knight, Mandricardo. Who is just charming. <laughs> He's just, he follows them through the rest of the book to interject with, oh, jolly good. Or, oh, I say. Yeah. He is just wants adventure, and anytime something adventurous happens, even when they're in great danger, he's so excited <laughs> to be having an adventure. <laughs> Right before Mandricardo is introduced, there's a chapter starring Zazamank where he watches them in his magic globe and then he walks over to this thing. He's like, oh, now time to unleash my secret weapon. And it describes this thing rotting with maggots. And then in the next chapter, Mandricardo is introduced and they talk about how there was another Mandricardo who died and how they kept naming them Mandricardos. So I thought throughout the book that he was going to turn out to be an evil enchantment by Zazamank, but he wasn't. He was just a friendly guy that hung out with them for the whole <laughs> book. He had no purpose. Yeah, just a new friend. I think he had to add another single hero 
because Kesrick was already buried. So got to keep those ratings up. <laughs> yeah, the office got way worse once Jim and Pam got together. So they had to <laughs> keep adding couples. Um, you know, I think one of the things that Zazamink has that's infected with maggots is also full of worm slice and cock chafers. Right. And then they were just zombies at the end. It wasn't anything special. Oh, yeah. So I don't know why they introduced it in the be- in the middle of the book or why it was such a special thing. Build a little bit of tension, yeah, I, guess. I guess. He tossed the pain him into a corner where a ratnod skeleton hung from rusty chains and left him to huddle weeping on a bed of filthy straw while he ascended to his great throne-like chair made of the skulls of babes and children mortared together with molten lead, seating himself therein and tossing the wreath of living serpents wound about his arms onto one hook of an iron hat rack. He kicked off his sandals and relaxed, Broodingly, his swarthy brows contorted into a frown indicative of deepest thought. <laughs> That's how Zazamink uh, kicks back after a long day. Yeah. Okay, well... They're still all trapped in this garden. And that's when the fairy godmother shows up and tells Kesrek he's an idiot for not just going up and over <laughs> the barrier. Because that's what Teron did. Yeah. Without even realizing it. And... There's a there's a bit where they like realize they're gonna have to leave behind um, Mandricardo's horse because his horse doesn't fly. Although Aramaspia has a pretty good idea that they build a catapult and launch the horse <laughs> over. <laughs> um, from there, they end up encountering a witch's hut, and this is like we get into. Grimm's fairy tale territory. Yeah, it's so far off to the side of the story, though. It's just a little... It's one of the the extra encounters that he would normally list, but for some reason he decides to explain this one. Just to fit more fantasy stuff mm. into the book. Just pack it in. Um, and she's got, like, the Baba Yaga house that, like, gets up on chicken feet and runs around and, I don't know... There's a dog that has a human voice. Mm-hmm. It's kind of spooky. And um, then Keswick's fairy godmother makes it rain and she melts. She melts like the wicked witch of the West. Mm-hmm. She screams, I'm melting. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. If you know them, all the references are way over the top and obvious. Yeah. Because he just names them. <laughs> well, on to the next book. Then they meet an amazon oh they go back to the enchanted garden because it moves around again yeah and they're like oh i guess we'll go check it out and see if anyone else is trapped and someone is trapped and she's an amazon and and she's just always topless yes but she wears pants though her name just translates to sexy butt (laughs) well if you got it you flaunt it (laughs) And she she talks about her mother, the queen of the Amazons, who's Megamastia, or Big Breasts. Mm-hmm. Then she comes with them. Just an extra fighter. And then the genie finally figures out that he's been tricked and comes back. But Teron shows up and defeats the genie because he figured out how to use his genie controlling talisman. Mm-hmm. Um, and as they're wandering through the forest... They uh, start to see, like, basically Halloween decorations, and they know that they must be getting close to Zazamink. It's that one extra spooky house on the block. Yeah. (laughs) There's a zombie fight. They all fight some zombies. But they're all, like, super struggling, because, like... They're they're, idiots. Yeah, they they keep, like, stabbing the the zombies, and their swords go through, and, and it's... Uh, but who's this dumb? Who, who, which movie have you ever seen where um, the guy tries to stab a skeleton through the heart with a sword? <laughs> well, Aramaspia figures out that you can take a rock and just smash their limbs <laughs> off, which she does, and it, she's still totally naked, just smashing zombies apart with a rock. And then their final encounter with Zazamank. Which is very funny because it ends so quickly. 
<laughs> I thought for some reason I thought we'd get like a double long chapter or something, but no, Lynn Carter sticks to the structure. It's a five-page chapter. And Zazamank is defeated because he just forgets the pommel stone's power and casts a spell to turn Kaz- Kesrick into stone, and then it bounces off the pommel stone and turns him into stone. The end. Um, yeah. And they all live happily ever after. Except for Gagliofo. <laughs> who the the narr- narrator refuses to talk about anymore. Well, leading leading up to the final battle, so Gagliofo is there, like, enslaved by Zazamank. And the narrator has some harsh judgments for Gagliofo. <laughs> As we all do. But the narrator reminds us that maybe we should wait and give him a chance you know, to see if he can redeem himself. So I was expecting him to, like, do something in this final battle, but no. he does nothing. He just watches, and then the narrator's like, we won't talk about whatever happened to Gagliofo. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well. And then the book ends with a section called Notes to Keswick, where Lynn Carter lists every reference and what it's from in the book. It's almost like a glossary where he, like, yeah, tells you a little bit about that thing. If you haven't read that Greek myth or... Yeah, which is just... You haven't seen The Wizard of Oz. <sighs> Why will these people just not learn from the books they like and try to write a better story instead of just mentioning them? This is the Ready Player One of 1981. <laughs> um, well, overall... This book wasn't that bad to read because I think he was able to, in addition to just referring to these things, most of them he was able to weave into a story, except for, okay, some of the later books. But at least book one, like, things were fitting together nicely and his style was good. I think I disagree. I think chapter one was enjoyable, but after that it was far too tedious. Reading five pages should not be a challenge. And the book is only 150 pages. I should have flown through this thing. But I didn't. It, was, it wasn't hard to read. It's not like he wrote in a particularly difficult way. It's just I didn't care. Every time he just got into listing the names of things and all these obnoxious characters... And the super simplistic story that I couldn't get involved with. And none of these characters feel like anything. All At the end, all you had was a parody of fantasy stories in general. I like fantasy, but I want to read a story. I don't just want to go experience fantasy. Like a, a sampler platter of fantasy. Yeah. Um. I think you also don't really care for parody or humorous writing, maybe, at least. Maybe. I'm not sure. Because when I was reading this, I could sit down for at least, like, 40 to 50 pages at a time and not... It wasn't, like, Sign of the Mute Medusa. (laughs) (laughs) But I enjoyed his writing style. His style was plain enough. It didn't get in the way of itself. And it had a little bit of that archaic tone sometimes. Yeah. That fairy tale style. But he just couldn't stop himself from interrupting himself to tell you how clever he is because he knows about another book. Well, do you have any other thoughts about Kesrick? I think we covered most of them. We didn't mention there's a narrator for this story who breaks the fourth wall every once in a while. For a lot of the book, I thought the narrator was going to be Zazamank <laughs> or Mandricardo or something. Well, you knew it couldn't be Mandricardo. <laughs> it would have been full of jolly goods. Or Aramaspia or the... the yeah. Just someone in the story, because it seemed like the narrator had a great love for Kesrick and then... You know, had a little bit too much opinion about what was going on. It kind of had that princess, that princess bride type feel. But I don't know. I don't know what I want to say about the narrator, <laughs> other than that the narrator wasn't very good and didn't need to be in the oh, book. I enjoyed the sassy narrator. He was and- fine, but just why have another? It's just another reference. It didn't do anything. Yeah, I mean, I guess I thought that um, with Sign of the Mute Medusa. 
that book was full of references to Dumas, like Three Musketeers and stuff like that. And we complained about not, um, why didn't he just copy some of that style? And I, I think that's something that, I mean, tons of writers do, but Dumas has narrators that break the fourth wall. I don't care about the, him breaking the fourth wall. I just well, I just I just thought it was in Kesrick. I thought it was cleverly done or at least competent. I thought it was funny. Well, I do think the narrator fit for one reason, which is the who do I think this book is for? And I think this book is for a parent reading to their child before bed <gasps> because each chapter's short. It has its own arc. Characters are simple, lots of fun adventure. I think as an adult reading to your child, there are probably parts you might want to skip over and parts you could cut down. Like a kid doesn't need to have all these dumb references. The kid just needs the simple fantasy story. But I think it could very easily be turned into a story you read to your kid every night, finish it in a month or something. Um, Which is the exact opposite of an adult fantasy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say... <laughs> This is that did not need to be part of the cover of this. This book, book is incredibly childish throughout. Not that it's bad that it's childish, but there's nothing about this that is an adult fantasy. Sorry, I jumped into who do you think this book is for? Who do you think this book is for? I think that if you like parody books, this is probably pretty enjoyable. And if you've read a ton of fantasy and have fun, like, oh, I know that thing. Oh, I know that thing. Oh, I've read all about that thing. Which is a style of comedy for sure, where you just list things that other people also know. Then, I mean, Ready Player One has tons of people who love it. It's true. You can't deny. There's, I'm sure there's an audience for this. Yeah. It would have been much more enjoyable without the blatant racism and sexism. Yes. Or... If it had been taken far enough to reach some sort of commentary on those things that didn't just feel bad to read. Uh, is that it? Are we done? <laughs> if you'd like to join us next month, we're reading Time Stop by Philip Jose Farmer.